Good evening. It's nice to have you guys here, last minute in a different room. Glad you all found it, relatively on time. Would you please pray with me before we start? Father, we come to your word, and we are often hard towards it and proud, but we pray that you would soften us and humble us before the words that you speak to us through your prophets, through your apostles. Help us to love your word more and more as we come to it day by day. Help us to guide our lives by it. Enlighten our eyes, open our ears, fill our hearts with your spirit that we might honor you and be righteous indeed, Father. We pray that you would strengthen us now. Give us zeal and might and love for your word as we just sang, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm going to ask you to describe two people for me. Okay, first, I want you to describe the man whose sin is forgiven. Describe that man for me. What is he like? He's humble. What? Repentant. Okay. Joyful. There we go. Joyful. He's a believer. What do you mean he's a believer? Yeah. He's believed in something. Not just nothing, right? That's one of the lies that the world will tell you is that just faith in general is what somebody needs. It can be faith in Jesus. It can be faith in yourself. It can be faith in a general higher being. And that faith itself in something changes us. But it's faith in Christ we know from Scripture. How else would you describe the man whose sin is forgiven? Peaceful? What what does a peaceful man look like? How does that manifest itself? About what? Not anxious, not worried about what? Life. Life. Free. Okay. Yeah. Um, I'm going to read to you. This is what Scripture says about the man whose sin is forgiven. It says, How blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity and in whose spirit there is no deceit. I think another way actually that I could ask the question is how would you describe the man who has no sin? (laughs) Jesus. This How it describes the man whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. It says, how blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. Which means in God's eyes, that man is without sin and he's free. Um, Now that word blessed, what does that mean? Blessed. It's kind of an old sounding word, but what does blessed mean? Is it just... You know, saints with a little glow around them and a halo looking sort of placid. 
on a canvas is that blessed, happy, that's a good word for it. Okay, yeah, so it's related to blessing, having been given something. The word does have a connotation of happy. Now, that's kind of a word in our culture that's lost any sort of meaning. Happy to us just means, you know, happy, clappy, just sort of this light, fluffy thing. But, but if you had to open up what happy really means for you to be happy, what, what does it mean? Think about the things, what do we seek after to make us happy? Think about that. What do you think will make you happy? Entertainment. Okay. What else? Money. Comforts, generally, comforts, yeah. Um, So, what would you call the man who's constantly seeking after all of those things? Unhappy, unsatisfied, yeah. Yeah, discontent, I think would be a good word for it. And this word, blessed, happy, means content. Someone said at peace earlier is how you would describe, peaceful is how you would describe the man who's without sin, whose sin has been covered and forgiven. He's at peace. He's content. He's happy. When we seek after happiness, we look to certain things to make us happy. We're looking for contentment, looking for something that will satisfy us and give us peace. Scripture says the man whose sin is forgiven, he is the happy man. So I want you to describe for me uh, the man whose sin is not forgiven. Describe that man to me. Miserable. In what way? Depressed, afraid, nervous. Mm-hmm. Fearful. Depressed. What else? Exhausted? Hard-hearted? Envy? Yeah, full of envy? Burdened. Is it a pleasant thing to be with sin, without your sin forgiven? How do you know? <laughs> yeah. You know, you ought to know, you know, Scripture says that you know the burden and the weight of unconfessed sin. Certainly, in the respect that we all at one time we're without forgiveness. We're enemies of God. You were an enemy of God in every way, in how you lived, in how you spoke, in how you thought. Um, 
And you came up with a lot of good words for what that looks like because you've experienced it. In Scripture, this is how Scripture describes the man who is without his sin forgiven, confessed and forgiven. It says, When I kept silent about my sin, my body wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the fever heat of summer. Does this ring with you? This description of a man with unconfessed sin. Good. (laughs) It ought to, and it applies to those of us who are, this is a man, this is a psalm of David. He was a man who was God's chosen But he is speaking of this even in the sense of having unconfessed sin as God's chosen. So even as a Christian, like Paul said, when we have unconfessed sin that we hide, that festers in our heart, it has this effect on us. We waste away. It's exhausting. It's a burden. It's a weight. It depresses us and weighs us down. Um, And it's a miserable existence. To keep sin inside. To keep silent about it. So why don't we confess sin? Too proud? What do you mean? Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's right. Confessing sin means exposing ourselves. It means showing who we truly are. Um, but notice what it says here. Uh, Jason said something earlier about the man who has his sin forgiven is that he's, uh, I forget what it was you said. He's peaceful. He's... Uh, It reminded me of verse 2. I'm in Psalm 32, by the way. You can turn there now if you want to follow along. Um, Verse 2 says, How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity, in, in whose spirit there is no deceit. A man who has confessed his sin is an honest man. And he knows who he is. And everyone knows who he is. Okay? Um, But exposing ourselves in that way, confessing sin, means that we have to be vulnerable. But I want to keep reading, starting in verse 5. It says, I acknowledged my sin to you, and my iniquity I did not hide. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. This is what it is to confess our sin to God. It ought to be a relief. It is a relief to be able to confess our sin to God. Because what happens when we confess our sins to God? What does Scripture say happens? 
Yeah. He forgives our sin. Based on what? From the text here, what happened in order for God to forgive sin? Yeah, the confession itself. Opening up to God, being honest to God with who you are. God knows who you are, right? God, man looks on the outward appearance, and that's what drives our keeping our sin to ourselves, right? Is that we care about our outward appearance and how men see us. And we forget so easily that God looks at our hearts. God doesn't need us to confess our sin to know that we are sinners. When he looks at you, just as I, you know, look at Justin's face and see that you're wearing glasses and you've got a beard and brownish hair and a green shirt on, when you look at each other and you see, you know, Jason's got brown hair and he's Asian and has glasses on and a beige sweater, and it's plain as day, right? That's who Jason is. This is God looking at your heart. He looks at your heart and he sees, as plain as I see, what Jason is wearing and what Jason's face looks like. That's how God sees your heart. He sees that you are what? A fornicator? Sees that you're given to pornography, to lying, to anger, to envy. As plain as day, that's what God sees. He doesn't need you to say, you know, I don't need Jason to tell me, Alex, I'm wearing a beige shirt today. Oh, thanks, Jason. (laughs) God doesn't need us to tell him that we're sinners. That's what he sees. So why do we confess our sin to God? If he knows already, what's the point? Yeah, in order to confess our sin to God, we have to be humble. God says that those who lower themselves before the mighty hand of God, He will raise them up. But if we exalt ourselves and refuse to confess our sin, then God will humble us and bring us down. And so God requires that we come to Him confessing who we are who we really are, who God already sees us to be. And when we humble ourselves, then he forgives our sin. So verse 6 says, Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. In a time when God may be found. What does that imply? That's right. There's a time when God will not be able to be found. Right? That's what that implies. It says, Let all who are godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. You don't have to turn with me, but I'm going to read from Acts 17. We'll get there in uh, 2024. 
Uh, Acts 17 is Paul preaching on Mars Hill in Athens. And this is what he says to complete pagans who don't believe in the true God. Remember, he's not speaking to Jews here who have the scriptures and the prophets and all of the context and everything. He's speaking to unbelieving polytheistic pagans. He says, Uh, The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything, since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and the boundaries of their habitation, that they would seek God. If perhaps they might grope for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. In verse 29 it says, Being then the children of God, we ought not to think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and thought of man. And then he starts talking about God. He says, Therefore, having overlooked the times of ignorance, God is now declaring to men that all people everywhere should repent. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. This is the truth of God, that there's a day fixed in which he will judge all men. And the call is to all men everywhere to repent. And so the psalmist, way back you know, King David, hundreds of years before Christ ever came along, says, let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. This has always been the reality. That there is a time that we're in right now when God may be found. He is being merciful right now to the entire world. Because as Scripture said, God loves man. He loves mankind. Um... And he's being merciful, not only to us who have believed in Christ, but he's being merciful as we speak now to all of the people around you. Everyone who's alive right now, God is being merciful to. Because he's full of love and kindness. And is providing opportunity for every man to come to repentance. Every woman, every child. And so this is the people around you that God is right now being merciful to. That God is providing opportunity after opportunity to, to repent and turn to him. There's a day fixed in which God will judge by the perfect standard of Jesus Christ. But that day hasn't come yet. Right? And why? There's only one reason it hasn't come yet. And why is that? He's merciful, but what's the, what's the goal? <laughs> okay. Um, we have it in the psalm here. Let everyone who is godly pray to you in a time when you may be found. So God is calling his people to himself right now. And there are people that have yet to come to him. People who, are, by all appearances on the outside, it seems hopeless. Because they are under this weight of sin. They are 
the gross, dirty ones. You know, all of those fornicators and homosexuals and uh, liars and partiers and everybody around you, all of those ones who there's no hope for. It's people like that that God is still calling to himself. The reason that he hasn't brought the day of judgment yet is because he's calling more wicked enemies of his to himself because he's kind and gracious and compassionate and wants more people like you to come to know him. Surely in a flood of great waters, they will not reach him. This is describing the man who has been forgiven. That when we are forgiven, the greatest disaster that you can imagine, you know, flood of great waters, what do you think of? What is that in your mind when you hear flood of great waters, they will not reach him? What, what sorts of things do you think of? Ice. <laughs> okay, thank you for being honest. <laughs> Noah, yeah, Noah. Um, yeah. That's right. There are very present realities that God has given to us that are floods of great waters. Um, I think of, yeah, after Noah, I think of Katrina and the damage that the flood of great waters did, sweeping away buildings and whole portions and just destroying everything in its path. The amazing destructive power of water sweeping away City blocks, flooding and and destroying houses and businesses and people. It's a fearful thing and an awful thing. But we don't even have to fear the flood of great waters if our sin is forgiven. Because that flood is nothing. Because whether we live or die... We know that we will be with Christ Jesus, having been forgiven by him. And so we don't have to live in fear of simple things like what we will eat, what we will drink, what we will put on, or of great fearful things, of disasters, of sickness. We don't have to live in fear. The man whose sin is forgiven is set free from those fears Because he's content with what God has given to him, which is eternal life. And this is our cry to God. You are my hiding place. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with songs of deliverance. What a joyful thing to be forgiven of sin. Is it not a wonderful thing to have your sin forgiven? Even your sins. Think about your sins. Let me tell you about your sins. Titus 3 says, For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, Enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. 
Who's speaking? Who wrote Titus? The Apostle Paul, right? He was a godly man. He's describing us. For we also were once foolish. You were foolish yourself. Disobedient. Deceived. Enslaved to lust and pleasure. You spent your life in malice and envy, full of hate, hating God and hating one another. And there are real pictures of this in your life. I said some of them earlier. Immorality, gossip, hating one another in all sorts of ways, physical violence, Um, homosexuality, uh, lying, you name it. We have done it all as bad as anybody else around us. We are full of sin. But when the kindness of God our Savior and His love for mankind appeared... Notice that God's love for mankind appeared. I said it earlier, but I'll say it again. God loves mankind. Man. He truly does. And so my question to you is, do you love mankind? Or do you have a very ultra-reformed view of, of man that God really hates mankind and... Uh, and so you hate mankind as well. No, Scripture tells us that God loves mankind, which is why he did what? What did God do because of his love for mankind? Yeah. He sent Christ to be a man, to be the man, to live among you and me and all of the other wicked sinners. And to call us to himself. And to die and suffer the worst things that a man can suffer. For our sake. And when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared. He saved us. Not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness. But according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration. And renewing by the Holy Spirit whom he poured out upon us richly through Christ Jesus our Savior. You haven't done anything to deserve God's saving of you. Nothing, right? Actually, nothing. That's what it says. Not on the basis of deeds of righteousness that we have done, but simply because God washed us by His Spirit in the blood of Christ Jesus. And that's a wonderful thing. Is that not a wonderful thing? To be forgiven, to have our sin not imputed to us, even though it's ours? How blessed is the man to whom the Lord does not impute iniquity. What does impute mean? 
give to. I may have to look up an actual definition of this. I'm going to do it right here. What's that? A tribute to, count, yep. Assign. It says to attribute or ascribe, to attribute or ascribe as to a person. Um, and so for God not to impute sin to you <laughs> means that God actually considers you, because of what Christ's done, as without sin. As without having done the things that you have done. If God did impute that sin to you, you would not enter heaven. You would not enter eternal life. And so God has freed us because he's made his grace evident in Christ Jesus. And we are to pray to him and continue to confess our sin. Um, so, what is it like, so we talked about God forgiving sin, but what is it, what is that like, that experience of forgiving, or uh, confessing sin to God? What words would you read? What's that? Okay. I wasn't asking, uh, describe to me what it looks like. How does, how does that feel when you confess your sin to God? What is the effect? Relief? Rest? Peace? Strength? Security? That God is our hiding place? You gonna say something? Sanity. <laughs> Sanity. Yeah, that's right. Um, and then what comes out of that relief, out of the strength, out of the peace of having confessed our sin to God? What comes next? What's the next step? What does our life look like once we've confessed our sin to God? Change. Yeah, and how does, that's right, yeah, change. And how does change happen? Is it just a, you know, snap and you're just a different person? Night and day difference the next day? It can be, certainly. Um, For some of us in different areas, it has been. For certain Christians, there are radical changes overnight. What else can it look like? Yeah? Um, That is certainly the Christian walk is sinning again and confessing again. But let's look at what this says. In verse 8 of Psalm 32, God is now speaking and he says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. So you all, most of you, are taking classes right now. And what's the point of taking a college class? 
<laughs> That's right. It's a very abstract thing that you're doing, right? You're paying lots of money to go sit in a room and have somebody talk to you and to, you know, get a transcript with a letter on it. Ooh, cool. What's the point? To get knowledge. To, to pass, right? Yeah, just to pass, right? Um, in theory, what is the point of taking a college class? To, to gain knowledge, to learn, right? And to truly learn something is a process, right? Your classes last for a semester. Wouldn't it be awesome if all of your classes were just a day? And you could go for that day and they'd say, you know, stick like a USB drive in your brain and say, you know, here's all the information that you need. Download complete. All right, you're good to go. That's not how we work, though, is it? We have to learn. We have to take steps forward. We have to gain knowledge and build on top of that knowledge as we move forward and grow in maturity in the things that we know and understand and can apply. And it's the same way with walking with God and growing in our knowledge. And God says that he will instruct us and teach us in the way that we should go. Which means that it's a process. Which means that God is continually teaching us, instructing us, that we're needing to always grow. Because we always have more sin that needs to be confessed. We always have areas that we can be purer and more godly. Whether it be with our bodies, whether it be with our minds, with our speech, whatever. And the life of a Christian is one of humbly submitting to God's instruction and to his leading of us. The, the humility of confessing sin is the beginning of the Christian walk. And it's a humility that continues, that we continue to lower ourselves so that God continues to lift us up to glory. And we need to remain humble. Look at this. I will instruct you and teach you in the way which you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. Do not be as the horse or as the mule which have no understanding, whose trappings include bit and bridle to hold them in check. Otherwise, they will not come near to you. Don't be like a mule. Has anybody ever dealt with mules here? Have you? Yeah? What are mules like? <laughs> Stubborn and mean, that's right. And they, you know, they dig their, well, they don't really have heels, but, you know, they dig their heels in, and you've, you've seen people, you know, trying to, if you go to the state fair or anything, I love going to the state fair, and you see someone with, you know, some sort of horse or cow or mule that just doesn't want to move, they're like, come on! There's this, like, you know, little skinny, like, 90-pound girl, like, pulling a 300-pound pig along behind her. And, um, and it's funny. <laughs> and that's what we're not to be like, okay? We're not to be stubborn as mules, which means we have the ability to be stubborn as horses and mules. It can only be led when you stick a big, painful piece of metal in their mouth and yank around their head so that they go where you want them to go. That's not to be how we are. We ought to follow as obedient sheep God's call. 
And we ought to freely submit and be humble before the correction of those above us or our brothers, but especially our fathers and leaders in the faith, is that we should have an attitude of humility when we're approached by people about sin, about ways that we can grow. We love you guys and we want you to grow. That is honestly what we want for you when we talk to you about things. And so be humble. Listen, have an attitude of humility in yourself that when you are corrected and taught, that you respond and say, okay, I love growing. I love being free of my sin. I love walking in righteousness. That should be our response when people come to us and seek to help us. Don't be mules. Don't be horses. Be godly. So that's the outcome of confessing sin. The outcome of the relief and the strength that we get from confessing sin and the peace is that we're teachable, that we continue to be humble, and that we continue to grow. And if coming out of confessing sin and dealing with sin, you find yourself hard and resistant, then you need to continue to confess sin and be free of that. Verse 10 says, Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Many are the sorrows of the wicked. Now this is God's word. This is true. This proclaims truth to us. Okay? The sorrows of the wicked are many. Now we listed all the things earlier. All of the awfulness and misery of having unconfessed sin. Of living under the weight of sin. But... Satan is a crafty liar. And we convince ourselves, and we're easily convinced by other people, that the sorrow of walking in wickedness is not that great. That's the lie that you are tempted to believe. When you see the way that people live, and the sin that they give themselves to, and they look so content, they look so happy, Don't they? A lot of the time. And in another psalm, you know, Asaph is proclaiming, you know, why? Why do the wicked prosper? I don't understand. You know, they eat whatever they want. It's not really a picture that appeals to us now, but he says their eye bulges with fatness. (laughs) Um, But we look at what how the wicked live and what they give themselves to, and we think, I think they really are happy. Look, they're always smiling and laughing, and they actually look content. But it's all a lie. It's all deception, and do not be deceived. Scripture says that many are the sorrows of the wicked. I was reading today about um, the regret of gender reassignment surgery. Um, which, does anybody, has anybody read anything about accounts of people and the regret that they have after having gone through gender reassignment surgery? 
Yeah. It's extremely, extremely common. Extremely common what that is. Or that desire to go back to say, this is terrible. Why did I do this? The suicide rate is like 30% or something of people who undergo that surgery. And yet we are at a university in a place where this is proclaimed as something that's glorious and wonderful to pursue. And that it truly will make people happy if we allow this to happen. But it's just a lie. It's just a lie. There's no hope. There's only misery and suffering in giving ourselves to sin. And that's a really obvious example, right? The psychological damage, the awful judgment of God on giving ourselves to immorality and the destruction of our flesh is obvious. But that's a picture of what all sin is and the effect that it has. All of the sin that we think will make us happy is just a lie. The lie that Satan told in the very beginning to Adam and Eve that it would make them happy if they just gave themselves to it. But no sin will satisfy you. None. Many are the sorrows of the wicked, but he who trusts in the Lord, loving kindness shall surround him. Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, you righteous ones, and shout for joy, all you who are upright in heart. Do you have this joy? The joy of having been forgiven. Are there times where you shout for joy? Because you know Christ Jesus. We ought to. We ought to have this joy. As we sing here, as we speak to other people. Someone said, when we were talking about the man who's forgiven earlier, I think it might have been Kristen, I can't remember. Um, something about, I don't know, it made me think of sharing with other people. A man doesn't keep his joy to himself, right? Jesus tells of the woman who's lost her coin in her house, what's she do when she finds it? She has a party with her friends. That's right. She invites everyone over. I found it! And we do the same thing. When we have a birthday party, we don't just sit at home by ourselves. Maybe some of you do. I do, but that's because I forget when my birthday is. Um, no, we celebrate with other people. That's what we do. When we want to celebrate something, we want to share our joy with other people. And there's no greater joy than having our sin forgiven because it's true contentment and true blessedness. And so we share it with one another. And when we see each other walking under the weight of sin and the exhaustion and the misery of sin, we call each other out of that. Why are you walking in misery under God's discipline? Why not be happy and content? This is what I say to our three-year-old daughter. I say, Jubilee, if you disobey, wait, no, that's not it. If you obey, you will be happy. That's what I teach her. If you disobey, you will get disciplined. This is our brief little discipline catechism. And it's true. God says, if we obey, then we will be happy and content in him. I want to finish, by, uh, finish with Titus 3. And keep reading it. 
We're going to start at the beginning of the chapter. Remind them, this is Paul writing to Titus, he says, Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed, to malign no one, to be peaceable, gentle, showing every consideration for all men. For we also once were foolish ourselves, disobedient, deceived, enslaved to various lusts and pleasures, spending our life in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness of God our Savior and his love for mankind appeared, he saved us, not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to his mercy by the washing of regeneration and renewing by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that, being justified by his grace, we would be made heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Love Jesus Christ. Love your Savior. Constantly be walking with Him, turning back to Him, thanking Him, telling others of Him. It's the only way that you will be happy, content, whatever word you want to put on it. Love Christ and what He did. Let's pray together. Father, we do love you. We are often stubborn and turn away from your word. We pray that you would be patient with us, cause us to walk in righteousness, teach us, train us, grow us in knowledge and discernment, grow us in joy and in thankfulness. We thank you for everything that you've given to us. We pray that you would give us a heart to see all the godly come to you while there is still time and while you may be found. We pray that you would strengthen us for our week ahead, make us lights in this world, on this campus, in this city, and make us faithful, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.